It's really nice to sit with you for a couple of minutes. Feel the deepening already of this silence here. Good morning. I hope you're settling in okay. Getting some good enough sleep. Hopefully also knowing yourself, welcome, welcoming yourself to every sitting, every walking, every waking moment. So as uh, Rob or Yen I may have said, or it may be apparent this week, we're laying out some of the foundations in these first four days, and Christina will... uh, (laughs) We won't finish the foundations, but we'll lay out the foundations in these first four days, and then we're always working with all levels of practice, the depth, the breadth, and everything in between. So I'd like to lay out for you and remind you of the foundations of mindfulness of body, and a little bit, if I have time, of mindfulness of Vedana, the second foundation, mindfulness of feeling tone. And I'm aware that Rob talked about body with regard to samadhi the other day. Whole body breathing, establishing and cultivating that foundation. And I want to go a little into some of the other um, parts of the mindfulness of body, part of the satipatthana. So please consider this, most of it you will know, you will have heard, but this is not only, I would say, a foundation of our practice, mindfulness of body, but it is where and how we live any realization that we have or have had, any depth of insight that we've touched, in a sense only makes a difference through living and while we're here in the human realm, We live in and through these bodies, for better and for worse. This is part of the lot of the human. So mindfulness of body starts in the sutta, as you probably know, with mindfulness of breathing, for cultivation, for samadhi, and for insight. And not to underestimate this piece. It's always useful. From the level of healing, the level of grounding, and I'll say more about these pieces, and the level of living our insight. So cultivating a whole body breathing practice is healing. It heals all the ways that we have abstracted into our thinking, into our stories, trying to locate ourselves in the world by telling ourselves a story about who I am. Mindfulness of body breathing as we steady 
as we breathe out, as we courageously let go of trying to locate our identity in our stories, which is what they generally do if you look at them. The mindfulness of body never tells us who we are. And that's why it's courageous. It doesn't give us that, but it tells us where we are. It tells us where we are. We will not get the reference of the story and the locating in who I am, but we will find out where we are. And the Buddha says, start here. Start here. Locate yourself here. So breathing out, we soothe the system. We can soothe the nervous system. You know, at all levels of our practice, the flickering agitation of dis-ease is something that we work with from the beginning through the middle to the end of our path of full awakening. This flicker of agitation where we're dying to get into something or get out of something. That can be soothed, um, regulated. It's like we hold ourselves as we breathe out. We give the body another patterning from the or the or the you know how it goes with our mind when we're in our stories, our body is very often doing one of these things. We're contracting or we're puffing up, we're pushing, we're pulling. We offer our body another patterning, a skillful patterning, where we can center our attention, we can unhook from the stories, we can find out where we actually are, we tolerate the not knowing of who we are because we're not telling ourselves a story in that moment. And we deepen. This is the place of samadhi. This is the location of your samadhi and of your awakening. So do not underestimate the letting your body breathe out following it right to the end, letting it soften you, letting it widen you, letting it prise your hands gently off the fixation with mind, with feeling, even fixation with sensation. It frees up the attention and we become more whole, we become vessels, we could say, that are less divided. One of my teachers used to say, sometimes when he saw his own practice or others, he said it's like being a Picasso painting. Right? The head would be pointing that way, and the shoulder would be pointing that way. And the, right? Not literally, but in terms of the wholeness, we're lining it all up. We're getting it all in concert, right? The head, the heart, the body, lining it all up. Here I am. Don't know who I am. Don't know if it's going to be okay or not. But right now, here I am. 
here body is and this breath is here for us to heal the nervous system there's a there's a piece of research i showed very touching i i read very very touching of um how powerful this is in our system the regulation of breathing and it wasn't meditators at all but it was um uh, regarding uh, infants born prematurely in incubators and they all of this survey survived but they did a one where they put little teddies that had a battery operated I don't know if you can hear that through the mic a battery operated whole body teddy breathing it's not even human and we get so much more from the conscious life but that regulation of breathing in next to the little prem baby and breathing out and in terms of health so that was the measures in terms of uh, recovery and when those babies could be allowed home the ones with the breathing teddy fed better right this does not mean all is lost if we were that unregulated baby not at all in all the various ways that may have been not at all this we can start to learn and not just learn but deepen in that all the cells all the flickers all the places where I haven't yet landed and settled and taken my place in this moment they can be included and soothed and regulated as we practice this more and more and more it's not like we have to get it right away it can take some of us really a long time and that's not a long time wasted it's a long time well invested this is the part one of the pieces of the path that is cultivatable it it's in time it's in time and i think i don't know how long i've been practicing maybe 24 years or so that this comes more to me now and now not even just as a foundation as if foundation is something not as interesting as the building or you know as if foundation is just it kindergarten in some way foundation is what things rest upon this is deep this is wide and any inquiry any insight anything that is penetrated and seen deeply will take its ground in the fabric of this wholeness to the extent that that is settled whole and available we may have penetrating insight but it cannot take it cannot flower it cannot um grow into the tree that it is that it can be without this ground this foundation for the seed to lodge in like a good soil that is rich fertile 
and whole. So how, how is this going, the mindfulness of body? And whether we're doing metta or we're plunged right into a particular other practice right now, it's, a, it, it's the same. Your body is still here. For your metta to um, deepen and widen and grow, where is it? This heart is located here in this human form. And finally, for grounding, mindfulness of body, for slowing down the process of these flickering agitations that pull us into samsara, of mind, of feeling, of emotion, of... Yes, all of those are included and can be rich and beautiful, but they move fast, they move quickly. The body foundation is slower, it slows the whole thing down. Literally, if you just even look at your body, it's, it's the more meaty, physical part of the kit that we're given, right? We have a bright head, sometimes a dull head, but we have these faculties up here, we have a sensitive human heart, or not sensitive, but... That's because it's so sensitive, we've covered it over, right? And we have this body. It appears more material, and contemplating on the level of sensation, it can slow down that process that even if what we want to look at is our heart or our head and understand it and not be pulled around by it, how does that happen? by grounding here in this incredible mixed bag of a body. Here's what the Buddha says. He's giving an analogy um, that, so first in my language, when we do this more, when the foundation of body is established, we are not so compelled to be pulled around by our mind, our emotions. There's something anchoring us. So he puts it this way. He gives the analogy. Now here we are. You'll get it. <laughs> Even though it's uh, this, you'll get it. He says, suppose there were a dry, sapless, so without sap. Suppose there were a dry, sapless piece of wood and a man came with a fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think, meditators? Could the man light a fire and produce heat by rubbing the dry, sapless piece of wood with a fire stick? Yes, venerable sir. So too, meditators, so too, bhikkhus, when anyone has not developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, Mara, so delusion, Mara finds an opportunity and a support. There's more um, likelihood that we're going to be pulled by our delusion. Right? So then he turns it round, here's in the positive. Suppose, everybody, there were a wet, sappy piece of wood, and wet here is our body infused with mindfulness, with attention, with presence 
with care. He said, suppose there were a wet, sappy piece of wood, and a man came with a fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think, everybody? Could the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the fire stick and rubbing it against the wet, sappy piece of wood? No, venerable sir. So too, because when anyone has developed and cultivated mindfulness of body, Mara cannot find an opportunity or a support in him. And I think I want to say something about how that's not actually that easy. Um, it sounds very easy, doesn't it? At least I used to hear these instructions and say, like, okay, cultivate mindfulness of body. Like I can just suddenly inhabit my arms and my legs and all the places I've pulled away from and tightened around and <laughs> where it hasn't been safe, where I've preferred abstraction, where I've not trusted the body, where I've inherited through culture and religion some, perhaps some... Uh, dis-ease or even looking down upon the body, whatever the conditions of any of those you may have inherited or not. That's the healing part. That's the healing part of, yes, those things are true for some, all of us to some degree. Because this body, while the Buddha says everything that's going for it, it is a mixed bag of pain, of pleasure, of neutralness, as we know, from the second foundation. I'll say more if I have time. It's not just an easy prospect. We don't say, okay, come to November retreat, suddenly inhabit your arms and legs. Mara won't, take a f won't get a foothold, and you'll be fully awake before you know it. All right. It's a very... I would say, courageous, tender, and, um, well, that's enough, isn't it, right there? Courageous and tender process for, I would say, most of us to re-inhabit, to heal the ways we have privileged abstraction, most of us. Abstraction into thinking, abstraction into getting fixated by anything in particular, actually. And by fixated, I don't mean we can't pick up things that we are genuinely concerned about or inquiring into. Fixated is when your attention is grabbed. That's when there's no freedom. The human animal that we are on this physical level, the human animal is a vulnerable one at the level of physical nature. We might as well just agree that bit now. <laughs> of the animals, and I'm not trying to say our lot is better or worse, but of, of the animals, we don't have very big fangs. We don't have a nice set of claws. We can try and grow them, some of us do. We're not covered in fur or scales and we stand upright with all these vulnerable organs facing out, 
This on its own, I would say, regardless of the particular conditioning of non-safety, maybe trauma, maybe religion or whatever it may have been. Just the fact that coming deeper into the human animal, we will, as part of that, feel our vulnerability a bit more. Vulnerable to what? There are not lightly right now things that we need our fangs for or our claws for or a nice covering in fur or scales for. But we do share the predicament of being subject to sickness, to aging, to decay and dying at this level of the physical. And just breathe with that, because for me, again, now I'm in the middle age of my life, maybe. I mean, I don't know when I'll die, but, you know, by norm, by sort of average standards, I'm somewhere probably past the middle, actually. We call it middle, don't we? <laughs> somewhere past the middle, actually. Um, we can know this. I began my practice 25 years ago with many, many, many death reflections to arouse urgency, to arouse the spirit of what will make a difference. And that was useful and beneficial and necessary. And I think there's something I can only start to get as I get older. And I bow before those who are older. Because there's something when we see, or if we're younger and have experienced sickness or something with the body, where we do see it's not mine in my control, it is subject to dissolution, dissolving, returning to earth. As one teacher says, in begins his Dharma talks, dear brothers and sisters, in birth, old age, sickness and death, kind of clears the ground right there, doesn't it? Opens the ground. As we take that on a little bit more, breathe with it, know it in the silence, not just the thought. Yes, the thought is can be useful. But we breathe with that contemplation, which is also included in mindfulness of body, as you may know. First foundation includes death reflection reflection on decaying. As we breathe with that, as I breathe with it right now, having named it, feel my arms, let it penetrate. It lands me more firmly here. It can clarify my priorities. How do I actually want to speak in this moment with you if I know we're all in this together? It makes me feel right now more immediate. Like there's nowhere to hide really. Try as we might. 
This can be liberating if we take this contemplation into our practice. And I, when I was contemplating talking about body, I wasn't going to include the whole of that first foundation. It's many contemplations the Buddha includes in that. And I checked my emails and a, an old friend from this age of when I was between 15 and 24 with a whole group of us young people that would be together, she, she let me know that one of the mothers of one of those good friends died yesterday. And the funeral would be such and such where I grew up in South London. And Oh, right, right there. Mrs. McCulloch. A whole life, a whole body, a whole soul, the mother of my friend. The body returning, no longer animated right now with this extraordinary and sometimes precarious flicker of life that we're animated within every morning we wake up and there we are again. Right? That animation no longer. Mrs. McCulloch. Josie, just remembered her name. Contemplating body as body internally and externally. This is another piece you see in the sutta. He he says, contemplate internally. So yes, I do my work with breath and sensation. And externally. I'll read you the piece. So how does one abide contemplating body as body? Many brilliant suggestions here, and you can take one for a sitting, for a walking, for a whole day, for a whole week. But here's some of them. In this way, she abides contemplating the body as body, internally, and or she abides contemplating the body as body externally, or she abides contemplating the body as body both internally and externally. That's one. I'm just going to stop there rather than read you the whole brilliance, actually, of the Buddha. You can, you can always look in the... We have like five or six copies of these, I think, of the, of the middle-length discourses of the Buddha in the library towards the window on the left. Number 10, one of the famous ones. What does it mean to contemplate internally and externally? And I include this bit here because in a solitary retreat, it's very easy, at least for me, to contemplate, not easy, it's more obvious to contemplate internally. Because we're solitary, because we're not engaging, we're not so drawn out, which is perfect. We don't want to be drawn out. As we land back here a little bit more, we, we, we're doing our work in our location, right? You come sit, your body at one level, your breath, 
But I include this bit about external. And there's many ways we can ex uh, understand that. But consider it as you walk through the corridors, as you sit in the lounge looking out, gazing out the window at your fellow meditators doing their walking practice, as you're at lunch eating and you feel these other bodies around you, and this is just the human bodies at this point, or right now, what does it mean to contemplate body as body externally? What I think is so radical about this foundation, and here's where it picks up insight, is that right here, in your location, with your body and your mindfulness and investigation and good intention for seeing deeply, right here is the radical altar of awakening. And what do we awaken to? One of the things the Buddha awakens to is the emptiness of internal and external. That what appears internal and what appears external are not two. And if we know that, there's tremendous freedom in that. But how can we actually contemplate that for ourselves while we're here? So I'm going to give an example because that may be easier than me trying to explain it abstractly. <coughs> Firstly, I would say, check out and see if you have any um, unconscious fixating on internal. Now that's different than choosing, yeah, well, I'm here on retreat, of course I'm doing internal. Yes, absolutely. But just notice if in deciding to do the inner work, and we call it inner work, right, as we land here and we feel our body, just notice, and I would notice this on long retreats sometimes, especially in the corridors, walking past people. I don't know if you have as much uh, neurosis as me. <laughs> but sometimes I would feel my body kind of just tighten a little bit as I walked past my fellow yogis. Or just, I'd go into my head a little bit as I walked past my fellow yogis. Or I would try and walk somewhere else so I didn't have to walk past my fellow yogis, especially in that narrow bit. You know, it's a little close, right? Or, or you'd get over-fascinated with your fellow yogis. That's another, that's another issue, right? How to live and breathe at this threshold contemplating internally and absolutely we, we can preference that for a time that's different than fixating on it and as the practice gets more subtle as the samadhi is more steady we can see sometimes and you will have probably where there can be a slight separating boundary almost like a, a little eggshell or sometimes like a diving bell, <laughs> not an eggshell, it's like a diving bell, you know, or a wetsuit, or something that is 
No, 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 I'm, I'm in here. As I give an example, I'm not trying to say, no, you're out there, not at all. This internal is absolutely necessary to get our ground and not be pulled out by each other, by the world, by the things that call loudly or are beautiful or are terrible. Not to be pulled, but still we're responsive. So the example this morning, as I was thinking about this at my desk, looking out the window, contemplating body, so I was doing it, it wasn't just in my head, I was thinking about being with you and I was breathing. And I was reflecting on this passage and a woman who I know from up the road walked by with her two little boys, taking, walking them to school. So I saw them, all right, and the immediate recognition, oh, it's Justine. And actually the first thing I saw was the very sweet way she stroked her younger boy on his head. Right, they're about, maybe they're like five and eight, her boys. And she stroked the little five-year-old on his head. That's what I saw first. And then I saw the bigger one take her other hand. So it was this very sort of idyllic little scene. And I... I could see, I could see the, the pull. Oh, Justine, yeah, we had this lovely time at Christmas singing together and how sweet. That's all true. There's a richness. There's a richness. But I as I contemplated body internally and I rested, oh yeah, that's true. There's Justine and there's tenderness. Seeing body as body. mother, two little boys, as body. What happens if I contemplate body as body? I have to be here to see that, right? In the old days, I used to think contemplating at body as body would take the richness, the soul, the love, the juice out of life. It sounds a little clinical, doesn't it? Oh, if I just see her as a body. So what's wrong with the world, isn't it? You just see people as bodies. You can get into a hole. As I contemplated internally and externally, that foundation was there. I was less enamored by my story of how sweet and how gorgeous. And, and actually I could feel better. The foundation of body as body, now I wasn't pulled around by my story of how lovely she is or how, how's the big one feeling if it's like this. And The foundation was there and the richness and juice can rest on that foundation. Contemplating body as body, it's cooler. It's cooler, but it does not take away the heart or the richness, but it gives a foundation to not be, as the Buddha would say, actually, to not assert that the world is real, neither to assert that the world is not real. Right there, contemplating my body as body, 
her body as body, the little guys, body as body, everything rested. And actually, I could, my love was more available as it happens. Wasn't so caught in a story about what we're going to do this Christmas. And, right? It's a foundation for our heart, for our mind, for our relationships. So I would recommend taking at times one of these contemplations, and you can look, there are many, as you read, if you decide to do that, um, do it with your body. Read with body here, not just abstracting, just take one. It might be the sitting with the death reflection of um, that could be someone you know or your own death can be sitting with the skeleton, walking with a skeleton. Although that can bring many different things, being with us has for me brought many different things, not just contemplation of death. Could be just sitting for a morning or just one lunchtime. Okay, I'm gonna um, see what happens when I walk through the corridor when I'm in the queue with my body. Going to see what happens as my mind goes. Oh no, no, no! You don't have to walk past. You can wait till nobody's there, or you know, or you can be creative with that. But sensing this gift, because as we do, the fact that this is a vulnerable creature on the physical level. is also an incredible asset. It's an amazing, we are an amazingly extraordinary, ordinary, because it's also very ordinary, piece of equipment that can sense, that can, that is conscious. That's the amazing thing. When the Buddha talks about mindfulness of body and encouraging us to come into the body as home base, as foundation, he's not under the illusion that this is your home in terms of um, that you're just your body or um, this is where you'll find ultimate satisfaction. Not at all. We know that. But he is saying in coming into this more and more fully, with the spiritual faculties, the mindfulness, the investigation, the samadhi, etc. This, this is the vessel that is cultivated for living well, for waking up and for not being bound and compelled to act out of our gut reflex of pulling away from our experience or others or pushing on our experience or others. I really just want to sell, if it needs any selling, the first foundation again.
because whatever work we're doing in our inner life, including untangling from the sankharas and the patternings of heart and mind, the body foundation is our ally in that. Yes, because it slows us down, and yes, because sometimes that's what we need to come to and leave the other stuff well alone for a while. To deepen our resource, the vessel gets more filled out and the sankharas and the tricky bits will have more room to unfold in. So please enjoy. And when I say enjoy, I'm not, again, I could almost feel my yogi self going, enjoy, enjoy, sometimes it's really hard. I just touch very briefly on Vedana. I, I don't know if Christina will pick it up further. I think tomorrow she'll talk about um, mindfulness of mind, I think. Um, but I, And I don't have time to fully unpack it, but please consider the foundation also of the second foundation of Vedana feeling tone for practicing this for a time, really getting proficient with recognizing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, moment to moment as they arise, for a whole morning, for a day, for two days, for example, means it's like it's like a, it learning an instrument. That, uh, that piece of your instrument will be available for you your capacity to go, oh, yeah, right. Oh, wow, that's unpleasant. Not, oh, my God, this is bad, something's going wrong, I've done it wrong, you've done it wrong, um, I hate this, get me out of here, and we want to just pull away from body and mind. Oh, no, this is unpleasant. Recognition. There, this is empowering. The difference between recognizing unpleasant contact and being compelled through a gut reflex to act on it by how do you act on unpleasant sensation here you have less options you know you can't go and watch the telly or have a beer or you know that's what, what the, one of the things the buddha says actually the untrained mind will react to unpleasant sensation by going to find something pleasant But we withdraw, we tighten, the heart can become stiff. Can you recognize unpleasant as unpleasant? Do you know when you're in reaction to unpleasant? This is, this takes some samadhi, this takes some presence, firmness. Again, I'll, I'll give an example, I think it's easier. Practicing with a lot of body pain, especially in my arms, um, I think for a very long time I had no idea I was in reaction to unpleasant. I think there was a view operating, I just have to get to the bottom of this. I have to be kind to this. I have to be spacious to this. If I can let it dissolve and disappear, that will be better. 
Because, you know, you can sometimes see that in practice. No. This was hurting, it was burning, it was unpleasant, and I was pushing at it. And then I'd get exhausted. (sighs) I'd feel it in my heart now. The heart becomes exhausted, pushing at it. And I'm just talking about the level of sensation at this point. At what point can we see, oh, oh, that's right, the teaching isn't about getting rid of unpleasant. The Buddha had backache. Freedom is freedom within the human realm, actually. That includes its share of pleasure, unpleasant, and neutral. Can I get more interested in my attention? Because when freedom calls us, it is about our attention not being compelled to do anything, actually. Even though we've had glimpses of freedom where things have dissolved and disappeared in front of our eyes, that teaches us something, yes. But freedom is freedom from being compelled. Can I get interested when my attention fixates and pushes, always draws, the heart stiffens? With neutral, What happens to your attention when you are neither in pain nor in pleasure? And let's just take body for a start. The untrained mind will fade, become vague, will lose resonance, will lose the juice, will become bored, will lose the vibrating, the pulsating along with life. The Buddha calls anukampa that capacity to pulsate along with life, even when the life becomes subtle, 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 is neither burning, screaming, nor blissful. Can I tune my attention deeper right there? Bow to that place at the altar. This is the doorway for my depth, the neutral that is not shouting at me. Can I widen and soften and learn how to resonate as things become more quiet, less flickering, less disturbing, and let that take me deeper and wider? And finally, with the pleasure. Yes, there is wholesome pleasure in our meditation. It is skillful to be able to let that happen. That's different than fixating or tightening. Can I recognize this is pleasure? This is pleasant. Can I take my hands off? Can I breathe out and widen and let that wholesome pleasure born of seclusion, let it widen and fill and pervade and steep through the cells, 
for my healing, wholeness, for the release, actually, as this location becomes easier to hang out in over the years for many of us. This separating boundary of inner and outer, we trust more to let it down. The diving bell can become an eggshell and can soften and dissolve. I'll put up on the notice board the um, famous Arrow Sutra. You know, this brilliant teaching of the Buddha of the two arrows. If you don't know it, uh, you should. <laughs> He's so simple and brilliant. And we can contemplate right at that level. Yes, there is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then he said it's like an arrow. That's... He says, like a, an archer comes with another arrow and shoots that right in the first, and that's everything our mind does with it. And he, he describes it in this... I don't know if he said it exactly like this because it's been translated, and it was an oral tradition, so it has this sort of repetitive... Um, but it's great to read it. I, I'd heard it for years, and it took a long time before I read it. But the punchline is... Desirable things don't charm the mind, and undesirable ones bring no resistance. If you are neither charmed nor resistant, <sighs> there's a lot of freedom there. Okay, let's sit together for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.